Welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Chris Gordon and I work in events and programming at Readings. And today I'm speaking to Kirsten Alexander about her new book, Half Moon Lake, inspired by a real case. This is a captivating historical novel set in America's deep south about a lost boy and the two mothers who both seek to claim him. Kirsten, you've done a variety of roles with various writing type fields. So you've worked for... uh, various copywriters, you've worked as a book editor, you've written articles for The Age, for The Daily Beast, for The Notebook, for The Melbourne Weekly, and many, many others. You've been a reviewer for the ABC's Radio National's The Book Show, a magazine section editor, and a content manager for several websites. Why? Why, mate? Why write a book now? (laughs) Um, Well, all I know is words. And often I'm not very good with them. So it's a pretty limited scope I've got to work with. Um, But to be honest, my beautiful younger child suffered a health issue. And uh, so I had to be home. I had to be home to help him. I spent a lot of time at home with him and our pets. And uh, it was the perfect time for me to sit at a desk and do something that had been playing in my head for a few years and sit down and write a story. So why write this particular book? Why write this story? Um, it's so good to talk to you about this here because it was inspired by a podcast. <gasps> I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. Fantastic. It I love fantastic. that. Um, NPR's This American Life um, put out a podcast called The Ghost of Bobby Dunbar. And that was the true story that was my launching point, launching point for writing um, fiction. And it told the story of a young boy who went missing in Louisiana, wandered off, and when he was found two women laid claim to him. And I listened to that podcast over and over again. It's stuck in my head for reasons I can't explain. And I couldn't make sense of it. There were too many questions Mm. for me. And so I decided to make up some answers. I find it really interesting that here you are, this sort of cosmopolitan, gorgeous, uh, intelligent (laughs) woman here in Melbourne, and yet writing about something that happened in Louisiana in the early 1900s. Like, It just seems such a a long, long time ago and such a long, long way ago. Oh, um, well, I was born in America and maybe that's the the starting point. I was born in America. Whereabouts in America? Um, I was born in San Francisco. Oh, so cool. My dad's from L.A., um, but Wichita, Kansas first. Wichita, Kansas, then L.A. My mother's from San Francisco. And they decided to move halfway across the world to Australia with their two young kids, no money, no friends. Um, They were running away. That's another story. They were running away from America. And we grew up in Australia with no family around. And so America's long fascinated me. And I have a strange kind of identity crisis thing where I am Australian 100%, but I also have a lot of American family, a lot of American ghosts in my yeah, life. of course. Um, so American stories interest me. And this one involved a missing child and family and identity, kind of ticked all my boxes. So did you go back to Louisiana while you were writing? I've never been to Louisiana. On purpose. On purpose. On purpose. In 2017, I went to San Francisco for the first time in decades oh my Lord. to see family meet family. Um, And I had time to go to Louisiana, but I thought, I better not. This story's set 100 years ago, and Louisiana now is a whole new ballgame. So I wanted to keep in my head the the world I'd made up. 
Uh, one of the things that I, one of the elements of your writing that I found quite heartbreaking and dear listeners we're going to tread very carefully here because I don't want to give away the plot of this book too much it's a mystery it's got it's quite thrilling in parts and I want to leave that end completely up to you reader so that you can enjoy the the, the pace as it picks up because it's it, it does pick up one of the elements that I loved about uh, your writing was the way that you described the characters, the, the sort of the the, uh, the parents, how you described John Henry and Mary Davenport. So the parents of this child that goes missing, and the sort of the different paths that they take in their grief and their search for their son. Do you like these characters? Are these people that you could imagine being friends with at any point? I don't think I'd be friends with them, but I try to understand them. Mm. I have two sons Mm. and I would do almost anything in the world for those two boys. Um, So I understand parents going to great lengths to try and help their children. But somewhere along the way, these two people lost their, their moral compass. They did. And did things that I personally wouldn't be comfortable with or supporting. Yeah. But I try and understand that when you're acting on behalf of your children, you go to enormous lengths. Of course, mm. of course. Mm. It's almost like that uh, when we when you talk about the moral compass, I was thinking about how uh, it's sort of just something that we take for granted that a, a parent would put their life before a child. You would go into that burning building even though you know that you might die to save a child, mm-hmm. your child. Mm-hmm. You would do extraordinary things and in particular John Henry does doesn't he that the, the father he he goes out he searches he treks and along the way he learns some lessons that uh, that seem very much of the time I'm thinking about the way that he interacts with some of the people that work with him was that an interesting area to explore it was because as well as the um, the there were a lot of issues of power that interested me. Um, children have very little power now as well as then. Um, so these people were acting on behalf of a child who really had no say in the matter at all. Um, but also there were issues of power between people who were wealthy and people who were not, people who were white and people who were not, um, yeah. people who had certain jobs and those who, who didn't need to work at all because they were so wealthy. Um, so there were great inequities at the time. And I and I would hope that the main character was alerted to some of those on the way. But in the end, I think he fell on the side of selfishness and, um, you know, People sometimes do that. They do. Mm. They do. It's not a happy story. Um, no, no. <laughs> it's not a happy story. Sorry about that. I'm sorry. But I hope there are, there are parts of it that are um, interesting and maybe parts where you see the best in humanity. Absolutely. There are a couple of characters who I, uh, not of my making, they just kind of decided of their own accord to do the right thing. Yeah. By others. Yeah. And um, they'd be the ones I respect the most. Who's your favourite character in the book? Esmeralda. Yeah. 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 Esmeralda is a person who is disenfranchised for lots of reasons at the time. She's a woman. uh, She's a woman of colour. She works as a housemaid. But she doesn't lose her moral compass at any point. She is quite heroic. She. And it seems that some of the other characters sort of look to her for 
yeah. signs. I thought I was thinking about the reporter. He yeah. he likes to check in and make sure that Esmeralda yeah. is. And so does, so does the husband, actually. I think maybe then as now, when people have a strong sense of, you know, ethics or a strong direction or they're very sure of what they're that, that what they're doing is is the right and good thing. We we do look to them as examples of you know the best of humanity. Certainly, mm. in that way, it makes your novel quite timeless, even though it's set such a long time ago in such a country so far away. Uh, were your friends and family surprised that you wrote this novel? Uh, I didn't tell anyone. You I didn't was tell doing anyone. It. No. How no. long did it take you to write? Oh, years. <laughs> when we say years, oh like, my god, <laughs> like we like, like really, like five years, five, yeah, five years ago, I wrote a manuscript and um, it started out very differently from this. It was a dog's breakfast of a manuscript. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I wrote one before this, which was also a dog's breakfast, so I had experience in that sense <laughs> with breakfast how did in you know that? How did you know that they were a bit messy? Um, because people told me that <laughs> when I did so finally kind. show them. Yes, they were correct. Um, so I wrote a version of this that told the story of the 1910s, but also the 2000s, the people who had descended from this story. And I tried to um, do a braided story of then and now because I've seen other people do that very Mm. successfully. I did not. Um, I know that because I showed it to an agent in Australia and America and a freelance editor who were in furious agreement that this wasn't working. Yeah, right. (laughs) Bless. Um, Is that heartbreaking? uh, No, it probably should have been. Mm, I I found it strangely... I'm, I'm... just boringly pragmatic. So I said, it's not working. All right, what do I do to to make this work? And the American agent said, you've got two books on your hands. You need to pull out the old story and just tell that. Mm. Um, And she was very clear and that seemed like good advice. So I did that and it worked a lot better. Yeah, but it takes ages. Have you done a writing course before? No, I did the uh, the closest thing I did was to go to Canada to Banff to do a, a course um, at their Centre for Creativity. So it was a writing course, but it was very specific. They looked at a manuscript, the one I wrote before this, and um, and gave advice about how to how to make the story better. But it wasn't writing per se. No, no general writing advice. Yeah. But I got to go to Canada, so that was good. Amazing. <laughs> Fantastic good. fun. Mm. Mm. So I'm interested because your book does sort of build the suspense. It starts off in a, you know, you, you start off in the house and it sort of moves outwards and outwards and outwards. And uh, towards the end, I found myself really turning the pages as quickly as I could. I was almost skim reading because I wanted to find out the end result. How do you do that as a writer? Do you write the story and then do you go back to make sure that the pace is equal to the to the conclusion? I don't think I have writing advice to give to anyone. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I've published one book and I and I, um, I I don't think I have advice to give. Except I uh, the the way I went about that was that every time I sat down at my desk, I went back to the first page. Oh. And then I would literally just scroll right through as fast as I could to to place myself in the rhythm of the thing and then did intentionally speed it up towards the end. Yeah. But my only technique was to always start at page one. 
I don't know if other people do that or not. I've not heard that before. Mm, it was ve- sounds- not very time efficient, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to do. <laughs> mm. It must have been such a delight to, when uh, Penguin Random decided to publish your book and so exciting. What was that feeling like? It was so exciting. Um, the publisher at Penguin Random House is called Beverly Cousins and she could not be more supportive or more delightful or just a, a nicer person in the world. Um, she's based in Sydney, so mm-hmm. we've only met briefly. Um, but she called me up and, and told me she liked the book. There were other publishers who were interested, but she made the most sense to me as, as a human being and... and um, we connected. So it, it was a joy. Yeah, I, I feel blessed, lucky. Mm. It's hard to publish a book, I know that. It is, it mm. is. And especially a book that doesn't have a sort of a traditional happy ending in a way, I think. Yeah, and set in another country and all the, yeah, yeah, all of that. One of the other things that you do in your spare time, apart from being an author, a parent, running around, doing a variety of things, is that you co-founded a short story site Good Story Mart. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Um, Story Mart is still on the runway. Um, Mm. We are hoping to launch soon, but we are still on the runway. Story Mart is an online home for short stories, only short stories, up to 10,000 words. Um, We don't care if you've published before. We don't care if you've published your story before. We don't Mm. care if you're simultaneously submitting it um, or what the topic is. We don't put pictures of authors on the site because we don't care if you're a 30-year-old white man or a 65-year-old not white man. Um, We want it to be a place where readers and writers can enjoy short stories that um, in in one place. And I love short stories Mm, and I haven't been able to find that anywhere else. No, I think it's going to be, I think it's a fantastic idea. I hope so. We're at the moment gathering stories um, because this will be a subscription-based service. Right. Um, People will pay a very small subscription fee. That money will go to pay the writers. Um, So every time their story is read, they get a payment. Mm. And we're partnering at the moment with a couple of literary magazines um, so that their back catalogues can go on the site as well. That's fantastic. Which that excites me a lot because I know I've read short stories in the past in um, in print and love them and then they vanish and they can't get published again and I mention them to people who've never seen them. They might not make it to an anthology and that makes me very sad. I think, no, no, these, these should be alive and earning for the magazine. The magazine gets paid as well and earning for the writer. So if there's anyone listening who's a short story writer... Please send me your work. So how do they find you? Uh, we're storymart.com. Mm-hmm. You can go there. We also have a submittable page. We've just um, opened a submittable account um, so they can go through submittable and find us that way too. Just look up Storymart. Um, and, yeah, I'm hoping in the next few months we can we can launch that to readers. What did you do before the internet? Oh, <laughs> I am very old. So I remember life before, way before the internet and before phones and, you know, when the wheel was being invented. Um, what did I do? I grew up in Brisbane mm-hmm. in a, on a dead-end street with bush in our backyard. We always had lots of animals. Um, I swam a lot. I was barefoot a lot. Um, I don't know. I was outdoors. I read a lot. I read at night under Bed clothing with, with a torch. A torch. I yes. used to do that as well. Um, I don't know. I think I had a lot of spare time, and yeah. my kids don't have that. No, not so much anymore. Mm. What's yeah. filled in different ways? Yeah. 
yeah. yeah. I think it's just so incredible what the internet has done for for writers actually, and and your uh, initiative here is just an, a prime example of how extraordinary it can be as a medium. Um, well, I guess you, you you go with the mediums of the time, and yeah, I and I'm do. a big one for believing that um, it it. The internet won't won't kill off radio or TV or film or, or or anything. It just adds to our different ways of communicating, and and that's not to say it's all good. You know, Facebook is terrible and Twitter is terrible. We we all know that, <laughs> but but still, it's there's a, an enormous amount of possibility for doing good things online. I, look, I completely completely agree. Now, for my. Uh, sort of final question. Well, I've got a couple of final questions, and I'm just thinking about your childhood there, and reading, you know, under the under the covers with the torch, and running around. Is there books that you um, that you think about in your childhood that when you look back on it, there are. I was a really hungry reader, mm-hmm. like a lot of kids of my age and time were. Um, one of my favourite books was Heidi. I loved that she lived up on a mountain and spent her day with, you know, goats and... The goat milk. I always remember I, the goat milk. It just I sounded so delicious. Yeah. yeah. But I also read a lot of comics. And I and I um, am glad that I was never shamed about what I read because yeah. I think you should read whatever you want. I agree. So I read a lot of very grim Russian novels. I don't know why. <laughs> Crime and Punishment, you know, as a teenager. It's because we have ridiculous. to. We have to. Yeah. So I read that, but I also love my comics. I love that you're reading fiction, you know? these are Russian classics, you know, there in, in Brisbane, yeah. the sun shining. Yeah, I know, <laughs> reading about the gulag, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, having mangoes at lunchtime. It was Fantastic. bizarre. It was bizarre. But I think, you know, I read a lot and widely and yeah. I'm glad of that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think people should read what Absolutely. you want. Never feel guilty. Mm. Oh, that just reminded me of something else that I wanted to ask you. Uh, when you go onto your very excellent site and you read more about the way that you have been writing pretty much your whole life and how you've been encouraging other people to write and and you talk a little on your website about your book, your novel, but you've also got a Spotify list. Oh, I yeah. To, can you just tell us a little bit about that before I ask the very final question? Sure. Such um, a great idea. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you. Um, one of the beautiful things that the internet does allow when you're writing a book is for you to deep dive into whatever period of time you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So I was able to access um, old black and white films and old magazines, old newspapers and old music, which was great. So you can learn a lot about a time by listening to what people are singing about and the kind of words they use, who was recorded and who wasn't. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of uh, musical uh, periods and names and songs that I kept reading about that I can't hear because those people weren't recorded. So I gathered together as much as I could because it's like a capsule of the society and the culture Um all the different voices and topics. This is just before the First World War and then the really? first year of the First World War. So there were war songs and gospel songs, opera, ragtime music. I love that ragtime music. It's a very interesting time musically. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was such a tremendous idea and I love the sort of the depth oh. that it gives and the of your, of your novel. It really... Uh, I think you might be an ambience maker. <laughs> I think that's what you are, an ambience maker. I'm not sure what that is, but I'll take it. Yeah, take it, take it. 
Can you tell me what you are reading right now? Yes, um, I'm reading Rachel Cusk, mm. who I like a lot, but in all honesty, didn't understand. Right. Too stupid to get Rachel Cusk mm. the first time I read her. So she has written a trilogy, Outline, Transit and Kudos. I think that's the right order. I read Outline when it first came out and I didn't understand what she was doing. Um, the book is a lot of conversations with people she meets on planes, on her way to a conference in Greece. And I thought, where are you going with this? I don't understand at all. So once she finished her trilogy... I went, I've gone back and read them all to try and figure out what she was trying to do and why. And I'm a fan forever now. I love her. She's very clever. And, and the books make more sense to me now. So, but sometimes you need to go back. Sometimes you do need to go back. Mm. I've not read any of her work and I think on your recommendation I'm going to. You need a, a certain amount of time. You advise reading the trilogy together? Um. I don't know. Maybe you don't even need to read all three. There's a there's a mm. thread that runs through them, but perhaps the first one would be enough to understand what, what she's trying to do. I enjoyed the second one very much. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think people should read whatever calls to them, whatever that is. Yeah. You have been listening today to Kirsten Alexander discuss her amazing new book, Half Moon Lake, which is available from all reading shops. Uh, this is a multi-generational sort of trauma and it's wrapped up as a as an engrossing mystery. Uh, you've sold the US and Canadian rights. Yes. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Uh, and uh, you can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current books, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thank you to Atticus for recording this session and a special mention to Tom Hoskins for the fab introductory tune. This podcast has been recorded today at the Kathleen Syme Library. It's such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 